These readings from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whomever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. You may be seated and take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is, a, this is going to be a challenging week, so I encourage you all to keep, keep our ministry in your prayers as uh, school starts Wednesday, and um, it's always an adjustment when school starts to the daily, to the daily grind here, and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's been hard to get anything done uh, in the building this summer. I mean, we got a lot of things done in the building, but uh, there's a few things that haven't been buttoned up, namely the air conditioning because it's so hard to get parts right now, and shipments are impossible. So anyway, just pray for, for patience with each other and, and uh, understanding as we go throughout this week. Today's text, today's text in 1 Peter 3 may be uh, the most important thing that we've studied in 1 Peter so far from a practical standpoint. Obviously, there are higher theological points to be made, but from a practical standpoint, meaning how you and I practice our lives how we live day to day, there may be nothing more important so far than what we're, uh, than the text we're getting into today. As you know, this is no surprise to any of you, we live in an increasingly uh, strange world. I'll put it that way. Uh, with, with so many things going on, uh, people, people are being increasingly divided. Uh, and it seems to me that you can almost sense that the tensions are mounting out in our, in our world and in our culture. What will happen in the future? I don't know. I mean, I ultimately know how the Bible ends. Um, and, and I always you know, tell people that the book of Revelation can be boiled down to a few short, pithy sentences like, in the end, God wins and you want to be on his team. Because uh, the, the other team doesn't do so hot in the book of Revelation. <laughs> dad joke 101. I could teach the college class on dad jokes. Anyway, in the past few years and even up to now, co- the culture has shifted. And, and things are moving, in, in my estimation, with increased rapidity away from God. And it feels like it's impossible to keep up with the changing times. One of you will pose a question. Pastor, what does the Bible have to say about this? And then all of a sudden, the culture shifts again, and then it's hard for me to even keep up with thinking about all the different things that are going out in our culture. And then you layer on top of that a global pandemic and an all-time low level of trust in our news media outlets, and, well, it's a recipe for chaos, confusion, misinformation, and division. Where will we go when the world falls apart? This is a legit question. I'm inviting you to wrestle through it right now in your seat. Where will we go when the world falls apart? To, to where will we turn as, as people of God when things come unraveled? Where will we take refuge? Where will we find some people that we can, that we can trust Well, the place that I think that we should go to find refuge, the place that I think that we can go is to God and his word and his people. Let me say it a different way. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of the trials of this world, you should be able to find rest and support in the congregation of the local church. 
Peter has written in his epistle here about how to relate to the government when the government is not acting uh, perfectly, how to relate to an unjust employer, how to relate when uh, a marriage is rocky because perhaps one of the one of the partners in the marriage is not a believer or that or or at least that person is acting uh, not well towards their spouse he's he's written about all that and now he's going to write uh i believe about how we suffer together as a local church and and i just want to say i just want to say that this is a critically important text for us this morning because there are, there are things that each one of us and you need to do, the things that you need to put into practice so that we can together, with God's help, build a community of faith in this, in this church so that we can be that for each other. Amen? Amen. And it's, it's not a passive thing. I, I want to say that again. This is not a passive thing. This is not just that you can roll up to church on Sunday, plant yourself in the chair, listen, go home, and everything will be fine. It's going to take active participation on your part in order to make the community that, or the things that Peter is talking about a reality. I want you to imagine for a moment. You're, many of you in this room are believers, and I want you to imagine that you've just had an incredibly difficult week out in the world where the people that you come into contact with out of a selfish desire to advance their career, have thrown you under the bus. Perhaps even told lies about you to their, to the supervisor, to to, you know, to 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 make them look better, so that they'll advance up the rungs of the corporate ladder while you're left in the heap below. Uh, perhaps uh, you've done business with with someone out in the commercial world, and they've they've mistreated you and built you out of some money and not carried or followed through on their promise of a service or a good. Uh, perhaps it's even more. You've, you've had to withstand, because of your faith, you've had to withstand the accusations that you're a hater or that you're uh, somehow a crazy person because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And all that's happened to you in this past week, imagine, this is a thought experiment, and you come in on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to the local church to, to simply find peace and rest and, 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 a, and a group of people that, that are all united, worshiping the Lord together, only to find instead the very same things that are happening on the outside in the world are happening in the church as well. It's not a very appetizing thought, is it? I don't want that. And with the heat increasing out there in the world, I think it's incumbent upon us as believers to take what Peter is telling us here and to put these things not, and again, this is not a passive thing. You and you need to put these things into practice in your life. And, and when I say practice, I'm talking about just like basketball practice, just like volleyball practice, just like cross-country practice. It's something that you do poorly at first, but as you begin to as you begin to spend the time to put these things into your life, you become more and more skilled at them over time. And I believe that if with God's help, we can live according to what, for, what Peter is gonna say in this text today, and we can have a community of faith where we can find rest from the storms of the, ref, uh, storms and refuge from the, sorry, refuge from the storms of the world out there in here in the congregation, then I believe that that will be a powerful witness to the unbelieving world testifying about God's, the power of God's love to bring together a group of people who are different. We're from different ethnicities. We're from different, we have different opinions about a lot of things. I know some of you, you're opinionated. But, but to come together from different socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities, different, different backgrounds, and to come together in the common worship and edification, worship of God and the edification of the body. That will be a powerful testimony to the unbelieving world in a way that when we come together, it beautifies and magnifies Christ. I want that. Do you want that? 
Okay, then let's see what Peter has to say. Here's the question for today. How do Christians live together in the midst of suffering? We've talked about government, how to live under a government when we're suffering, how to live under an employer when we're suffering, how to live in a marriage when we're suffering. Now we're talking about in the church. How do we live in the church? And the outline of this breaks down pretty simply. First of all, the first point is how to live together. The second point is what to do when others wrong you. Because nobody, <clears throat> last time I checked, there, uh, Jesus Christ in the person in, in person does not attend this church. That means everybody in this church is imperfect, right? Uh, what do you do when others wrong you? And that's gonna happen. The third point is, what is the result of these practices? So let's get into the text. First of all, how do we live together? How do we live together? Look at verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, there's a, there's, that's quite a word list. And can I just say, if, if, uh, if you would walk out of here today and you would begin to put just one of the thing, if here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to sit in your seat right now and quietly just whisper a prayer to God and say, God, show me of the, of the list of things that we're gonna go through today in 1 Peter, show me the thing that you would have me work on first. Because a list, a list like this that's, that's in this text, a list like this is not something that you're gonna tackle all at once. You're gonna have to start with one thing and work out from there. So, so just do that for me real quick. I'm just gonna give you like five seconds. Just wish, and say to yourself, God, just help me to identify one thing I can work on as a result of this message. Okay, let's get into it. The first thing that we see here is that we are to seek unity. Now, I'm gonna I just, I don't wanna scare you. I'm gonna spend a lot of time on unity and sympathy, and then I'm gonna blitz through some of these other ones. But, but, but unity and sympathy are, are kind of a big deal. So we are to seek unity. Now, I don't know about you, but in the world that I live in, uh, there are some folks out there that wanna, wanna say, uh, we need to have unity just because we're a brotherhood of man. And it doesn't matter who you are or whatever, we just all need to unite and, and be a brotherhood of man. And there's a problem with that. There's a complication with that. The complication with that is that we have very different ideas as human beings about who we are, where we came from, what the ultimate purpose of this life is, and what will happen to us when we die. We have very different ideas about that. I'm not saying that every human being shouldn't, shouldn't be treated with respect and dignity. They should because they're image bearers of God. But what I am saying is it is very hard, if not impossible, to achieve unity just because we're all human beings. And let me further explain that by saying, I think it's also very difficult to unite under the banner of Christian. Because in underneath the banner of Christian, there have been, over time, imported all kinds of ideas that are not Christian according to what the Bible says. And so, and so one of the things, one of the key ideas I want you to walk out of here with is, is that we cannot have unity just for unity's sake. If we're going to have unity, we need to have unity around a common understanding, common faith in what God has said, not what Scott had said, not what Marvin has said, not what Pastor Witt has said, what the Bible says. Amen? And so, uh, you, what, let, me, let me make that argument a little bit more pointed. Uh, there, have, there is no shortage on this earth of folks out there who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, who claim to, to, to operate under the banner of Christianity, but who then take God's word and edit out large portions, if not ignore it altogether, and claim that they, they know what God has said because they feel it. Am I right? And, and while I, again, can respect that person because they're made in the image of God, they're, they're an image bearer, I respectfully disagree and say, no, that's not true. We, we actually have it in our hands. God in his, in his sovereignty has preserved his word for us so that we can live according to it. So, Let's talk about the things that, that we see in God's word that might be a threat to our unity. 
these are just some examples. So for example, uh, what can threaten our unity as believers is how uh, differences in of, of opinion on how we respond to authority, like government authority or whatever, how we respond to authority. There could be differences of opinion within the congregation. In Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14, this is a prison epistle. Paul wrote a prison epistle. And in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul assures the church at Philippi that his imprisonment is a good thing because his imprisonment is actually serving to advance the gospel. They put Paul in prison, kind of a mistake, because when they did that, he started witnessing to the guards, and then they started coming to Christ. You know, you can't, you can't do anything with this Paul guy. He's, a, he's just, you know, everywhere he goes, right? And, and then not only that, Paul goes on to explain that his imprisonment has, inca- has caused other brothers out there to be emboldened to share their faith, to, to witness to their faith. Now, why did Paul need to say, hey guys, just so you know, uh, just so you know, it's a good thing that I've been put in prison. Why did he have to say that? Well, some scholars believe, and you know, this is a little bit, some speculation on their part, but I, I, I get the argument. Some, some believe that the reason Paul had to say that is because there, there were a group of Christians who said, Paul, you cotton pick and fool, you opened your big mouth, you wouldn't relent and you got yourself thrown into prison. If you would have just backed off a little bit, you probably would be out preaching today freely. So it's probably that, that side of, of the fence. And then the other side of the fence is, was you know, Paul, which is, I'm gonna speak the word boldly and if it means I go to jail, I go to jail. That's what I'm gonna do. So he had to remind them, hey guys, it's a good thing that I've done this. So there could be differences of opinion that can cause disunity in the church. There's differences in doctrine. Uh, In other words, I know a lot of you at this church. I don't know everybody intimately, but I know enough of you to know that I don't think that we have two people. Maybe we have two. We We don't have a lot of people who believe exactly the same things down to the lowest level of doctrine in scripture. In other words, we do agree on the big things like the Bible is the inerrant, inspired inerrant word of God. It's the very word of God. We do agree on these things, and we agree on many other things about who God is, his character, uh, the the church is important. We we agree on a great many things, but when we get down to the minutia of, you know, the timing of the rapture or how a Christian ought to do this or that, sometimes there's disagreement, and that's okay, right? That's okay. Uh, The way we think about things is that there, there are certain doctrines that we hold up as level one doctrines that you have to believe to be a we believe you have to believe these things to be a believer. And, and most folks at Delaware Bible Church agree wholeheartedly on the level one doctrines. The level two doctrines, we would say you have to hold these things to be a member of our church because these are distinctives to our church. For example, we practice believer's baptism. We don't baptize infants here. We baptize people who have reached an age where they can confess that they've decided to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so uh, and so if you're, if, you're, if you're a person who likes to practice infant baptism or you believe that's the right interpretation, perhaps this church is not the right church for you, right? There's other churches that believe that. And we respect them because if the, as long as those churches hold to the same level one doctrines, we can call them brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's this third level that's, that's things that we can agree to disagree on. For example, the exact how the, the end times exactly are gonna unfold is a matter of scant biblical data, but lots of speculation, right? And so we can agree to disagree on these things and still be in the same church. The trick is, the trick is to not take a level three doctrine, okay, and elevate it to a level one. That's the trick. That takes some humility on your part to say, I I hold that this is true, this is my best understanding of scripture. And if you don't believe just like me, then you must not be a believer. That's not right. That's not okay to take a level three and elevate it to a level one. There's other things that we might disagree on too. We might disagree to the response uh, to trials and suffering, right? We might agree, disagree on uh, response to medical trials, right? We might disagree on Uh, how to respond to various personalities. Take your, well, you don't have to take your Bible, but just write down Acts 15. 
In Acts 15, Paul, probably the most prolific missionary that ever lived, I, I can count 14 churches that are attributed to him alone that he planted or planted with his ministry partners. Paul and Barnabas are, are getting ready to go on another journey, and they had a, a disagreement about a guy named John Mark. Now, John Mark had gone with them on a previous expedition and abandoned them. He left in the middle of the he <clears throat> he left abruptly in the middle of the uh, of the trip, and so here they are mounting another expedition. And Paul <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas Barnabas, Mister Encouragement, says, "Hey, let's take John Mark." And Paul's over here going, what are you, crazy? The guy left us last time in a lurch. He's unreliable. We don't want to take him. Let's take somebody else, not John Mark. And Paul, or Barnabas, is over here going, look, let's have some grace here. He knows he did wrong. He's not going to do it again. He's assured me. He's put together a little bit of a track record of solid behavior. Let's just, uh, let's just take him with us. And it was such a big deal to them that they decided to part ways for a time. Paul and Barnabas, the best, <clears throat> arguably one of the best, if not the best missionary team that ever you know, existed, parted ways over a, a disagreement about personality, a person. Now, later on, they reconciled, and Paul even noted in some of his later writings that he found John Mark to be a useful person and even wanted him to come and be with him. Excuse me. See what happens when you don't preach for two weeks? The point I'm trying to make here is that you can see, as an independent third person, you can see Barnabas's argument Hey, have a little grace. Let's take him with us this time. See, and you know, he'll he'll be better this time. And you can see Paul's argument. He dropped the ball last time. We're not taking him. You can see both sides. It's tricky. We can disagree on uh, differences of opinion on how, regarding how to use resources, right? In Matthew 26, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume, like very expensive perfume, like one year's salary perfume. And the disciples were like, hey, what are you doing? We could have sold that stuff and given the money to the poor. Jesus set them straight pretty quick. You see what I'm saying? There's a whole bunch of different ways when the pressure is turned up on us, on us as Christians, there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can disagree. And the Bible tells us, Peter tells us that we are to to, to have unity of mind. That, that phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture, in the New Testament. It's often used in different word combinations to say the same thing. It has the idea of being one in mind, unity of mind, same mind. We are to cert, cert, uh, seek for that. And so when we come into conflict, we have different options for unity. We can <clears throat> one person can decide to change their mind. They can, they can say, oh, I see what the scripture clearly says and I need to change my mind on this. And that's a beautiful thing. Can I just say that's a beautiful thing? There's nothing, I'm gonna say something and I want you to hear me. There's nothing Christian about having convic a personal conviction about something that the Bible doesn't have a conviction on. <laughs> Let me say that again because I don't think you, you didn't go, oh, Next time when I do that, go like this, go, oh, there's nothing Christian about having a personal conviction on something that the Bible is not clear on. See, that's better. It made me feel better. I don't know about you. But, there, but we, we do. We sometimes will elevate a preference that we have or a level three doctrine that we hold, a personal, a personal conviction that we hold. We'll elevate it up and say, if you don't believe the way I do, we can't have unity. Brothers and sisters, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. So one person could change their mind. You could agree to disagree. That's an acceptable response. Grant, unless it's a level one doctrine, right? You can agree to disagree. You can't, you can't agree if one person says the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God and the other person says the Bible is just a good, some good teaching. There's some good stuff. You can take it or leave it. You can't find unity there. Or you can separate. 
right? You could separate as Paul and Barnabas did for a time. Doesn't mean they weren't believers. It just means that they weren't gonna do ministry together for a time. Now, I wanna say something. I'm gonna come back to this at the end because this is a really important concept. Don't abandon ship before reaching the final destination. What do I mean by that? It's, it, now, first of all, let me say it's hard to speak about this because in generalities because it's, it's such a case-by-case thing. But I have seen Christians and I've seen them in this church who are having a conflict with one another. And instead of reaching uh, one person changing their mind, agreeing, I'm just not gonna deal with it. I, I don't think that's healthy for our, our fellowship here. I think that we need to have what Pastor Aaron talked about last week, which is kukamu, clear communication, mutual understanding with each other so that we know where, where uh, each other stand. And so try to keep working, keep working on the relationship until you can reach the one person's gonna change their mind or we're gonna agree to disagree or we're, we're just gonna have to separate. By the way, here's a, here's a clear sign that you know your relationship with another person is broken. If you, <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, it's funny. Um, if you have a, if you're having a conflict with Jim but you can't talk to Jim, you have to talk to Jim through Fred. Hey, Fred, tell Jim that I'm mad at him and that I'm not talking to him anymore and then tell me what he says back. That's a problem. You, know, you, you might want to work on it at that point because it's become unhealthy. Okay, so the assessment question is this. Do you prioritize unity around God's word over unity around matters of pre- preference? Do you prioritize unity around God's word over unity of matters of preference. The next thing the text says is we are to practice sympathy. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. Again, I'm gonna spend a lot more time on these first couple and then breeze through the other ones. Each one of these is worthy of a full study. Practice sympathy. What is sympathy? Sympathy means with feeling or with suffering. We are, we are doing the best we can to do two things to understand what the other person is going through, and then if we can, it's not always possible, but if we can, to alleviate some of their suffering or pain, to understand what they're going through and to try to help alleviate it a little bit if we can. It's not always possible, but can I just say, can I just say uh, to me, this is just me talking, my opinion, uh, there's a lot of, of there's a lot of good that comes just from having fellowship with someone when I'm going through a tough time, just to talk it through or just to have them be an encouragement to me or just to, for them to, to, to spot blind spots that I'm not seeing and to remind me of the goodness of God in my life. That is a wonderful thing and that can, that can be something that helps to alleviate the suffering if possible. Now, again, if you couple this idea with sympathy, of sympathy with what we just talked about, unity, then we, there's another trap that we can potentially fall into, which is we see someone, in, it may, perhaps, a, uh, well, a brother or sister in Christ, and they went down a road, they made a decision that we wouldn't have ourselves made. We have different preferences, we have a, a different way of going about solving problems, both of which fall within the scope of God's word. But this person went a different way and so we say to ourselves, well, now they're suffering or they're, they're in trouble. And we say to ourselves, eh, they made that decision. Now they're going to have to deal with it. No, no. Again, if you couple this idea with unity, if they made a decision differently than the decision that you made, and now they're suffering for whatever reason, we still are commanded to show sympathy, sympathy. And by the way, I'm talking about sympathy. I'm not talking about empathy. At the end, I'm gonna give you a link to a, a talk that you can listen to, to to understand the difference. And I found it to be a very helpful, uh, helpful talk. So we are practiced sympathy. We are, uh, so here's the assessment question. Uh, do you try to help someone even if they are suffering as a result of a decision that you would not have made? Even if they're making, if they're doing something as a result of a decision that you, you yourself, you have a different preference, you have a different way of doing it. Uh, 
It's a big deal. Okay, the next thing that we see on the list here is brotherly love. Uh, sympathy of mind, brotherly love. And again, I would point you, if you want to write something down on your notes, if you want to know the definition of love or refresh yourself on it, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. And you can ask yourself all those questions towards the person that perhaps you're struggling with. Am I patient with Jim? Am I kind? Am I being kind to Jim? Am I being envious of Jim? You get the idea? So we are to practice brotherly love towards one another. And again, all these things that Peter's asking us to do become, I just wanna kind of put this over the umbrella over the whole thing. These things all become increasingly difficult and complex when we're in the midst of suffering. And so we just need to understand that. And so I think it's good for us to develop the skill now before the suffering becomes more intense. We are to cultivate tenderness. We are to, to cultivate tenderness. And actually, these two things go next, uh, together. To cultivate tenderness and do not become callous. Um, there, is a, there is something about us, as we as human beings, when somebody's going through a tough time, and perhaps maybe, maybe they're going through a tough time because of decisions that they've made or failed to make or they did it differently than we would have done it or just circumstances in their life unfolded in God's sovereignty in a way that was unfortunate to them. It's, it's, it's easy for us to sometimes get into this mode. Hey, suck it up. Rub some dirt on it. You're fine. In other words, we can, we can fail to be tender and we can become callous to the things that are going on, especially if those things, we sense that those things are things that we've mastered years ago, but this person may be a new believer, they may be, they may be in a different circumstance in life, and, and we become harsh with them. No, we're, we're to cultivate tenderness and to not, re, to not become callous. And then the last thing in this first point is this, is to remain noble. And this is where uh, Peter talks about being humble, uh, having a humble mind. I just want to remind you, uh, I want to remind you that the Bible, numerous times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God gives us this thought again and again and again. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about that. Think about the person that's so filled with themselves that they think, I know better, I know what's best, I know, I know, I'm so skilled at this. God resists that person. And God gives grace, he gives that which, he, which they do not deserve to the humble. James 4, 6 says that. And so to remain noble is to, is to kind of rise above this pettiness that comes from pride. To take the high road and to, and to recognize that, that you don't know it all. When I was in seminary, I had to write a paper on 1 Peter. And, you know, uh, in seminary, uh, I don't know, I, I had to read a lot of commentaries on 1 Peter before I wrote my paper on 1 Peter. And I don't know, maybe I wrote a, read a dozen different commentaries or something, some crazy number like that, you know, when you're young and have the time to do that. And every single commentary that I read on 1 Peter said that 1 Peter, the main thrust of 1 Peter was how to live through suffering. Everyone, all 12. It might have been 10 that I read or 14. I don't remember the exact number. But uh, they all said 1 Peter is about suffering. And I kept reading 1 Peter and reading 1 Peter and reading 1 Peter. And pretty soon I got it in my mind that they were all wrong. And I know what 1 Peter is about. It's about something different. I have a different theory about what 1 Peter is about. So I wrote that in my paper. And my uh, humble-minded seminary professor said, Scott, he wrote it in red ink on my paper, Scott, do you really think that you know better than Charles Spurgeon? Or John MacArthur? Or the 10 other guys that you read getting ready to write this paper? He didn't say I was wrong. He said, you might want to reconsider your position. And he was right. Pride can make you do 
crazy things. All right, the second thing is, okay, this is how we're supposed to live. Now, what do you do when others wrong you? What do you do when others wrong you? And here in my Bible, uh, the text after, after verse 10, the text breaks into poetic, it's laid out in a poetic way. It's, it, it's indicating that it's a pull from another text of scripture. And uh, that text of scripture is Psalm 34. I'll talk about that in a minute. But this is what it says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, here comes the quote, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What do we do when others wrong us? Again, this is the context of the local church. It's gonna happen. Nobody in this room is Jesus Christ. uh, And so we're going to sin against uh, each other. What do we do? We do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, we are to bless those who wrong you. Here's what that, we, we ought to keep in mind uh, at all times, Ephesians 4, 29, right? Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give what? Grace to those who hear, right? That it might give grace to those who hear. If we're going to operate our lives in a way that is inherently Christian, in a way that's different from the world, then when somebody busts into my office and say, hey, Scott, you lousy jerk, that sermon on Sunday was abysmal. You stink. That never happens. But I'm waiting for one of you to do that one of these days. But if that were to happen, the natural flesh reaction of a guy like Scott Teedy is to say, oh, yeah? Well, let me tell you what I think of you. List, 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 list. And your mom addresses you funny, right? All those. But what are we supposed to do? What, what, is, the, what, is, what, what is Peter asking us to do? What does Ephesians 4.29 say? We are to give grace. We are instead to bless those who wrong us. So somebody comes busting into my office and they say, God, that sermon was, you stink, you're a jerk, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and the gracious thing would be to say, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. If there's, why don't you have a seat and let's talk about it? What are the things that make you think that I stink? What are the, what are the ways that I'm being a jerk? In other words, approach it with an attitude of humility. Soon enough, that person will expose themselves as to either what they really had was constructive criticism that I needed to hear and they just said it completely in an unhelpful way, Right? Or they will out themselves as being just a a discontented person who's just trying to stir up trouble, right? One way or the other, that will come out. But if I retaliate, if I return evil for evil or insult for insult, I'll never even have a chance to hear the constructive criticism and I'll never know whether that person really was just a, a discontented person who's trying to stir up trouble. I'll never get to that because we're just now not getting to the heart issues. We're just yelling at each other. So Peter says, when you're in a situation where somebody in the church, where somebody is wronging you and they're doing evil against you or giving insult, we are to bless. on On the heels of that, don't let your mouth get you into deeper trouble, right? Let his, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You can dig yourself a bigger hole, right? You can make the conflict worse through your words, right? Don't let your mouth get into deeper trouble. Now, before I go further in this, because now we're into the Psalm 34, I just wanted to give you the context of Psalm 34. You know what I always say about when, when, uh, when a New Testament guy quotes a psalm, it's kind of like quoting song lyrics that they in the culture, they knew these song lyrics because it was in their songbook, Right? So it, it kind of like, it can bring that whole psalm to their minds maybe, if you're just quoting some of the lyrics. It's kind of like when somebody quotes the lyrics from my childhood, from like 1980s music, it like takes me back. So here they quote, uh, Peter quotes Psalm 34. Now here's an interesting thing. Uh, in, my, in my ESV Bible that I have on the pulpit here, uh, above 
First Peter chapter three, verse eight, there's a heading that says suffering for righteous, righteousness sake, suffering for righteousness sake. That's in my ESV Bible, but that was added by the ESV editors. That's not part of the original Greek. Got it? In the Old Testament Psalms, those titles that are above them, like it says of David when he was doing this or that, those are, those are in the Hebrew. Those are there. Those, those come to us from God's word. So uh, I just want to point out to you what the title is above Psalm 34. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's the title. Of David, so David, King David wrote it, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech and he drove him out so he went away. If you go back and look at the context of that whole episode, it's recorded in Old Testament scripture. David had, 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 David had not done some very wise things. He'd gotten himself into trouble. He was captured by a foreign king and, he, and, and basically the walls were closing in on him. And the only thing that he could think to do in that moment was to go all Mel Gibson from Lethal Weapon and pretend to be crazy. You have to be my generation to get that. But he, he pretended to be insane. And so the king eventually said, who is this crazy guy? Get him out of here. And he escaped. But in the wake of that, apparently... David wised up a little bit and he wrote Psalm 34. And if you go back and read Psalm 34, you can, you can see that what David is doing in there is he's laying out that the keys to the good life is just to submit to God and live according to his word. He, he apparently learned that lesson in that trial. And so in that con it's interesting that in that context, Peter pulls out of that text and brings it. And so in, in the context of suffering, in the context of suffering within the church, Peter pulls from that psalm and brings it into his epistle uh, for, for them to recall. It doesn't make any sense to live foolishly. It doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is to live according to God's word. Remember Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Also says to, to flee temptation. It says, uh, let him turn away from evil. And I guess I should also put, inst uh, in instead of just flee temptation, also practice doing good. It says, flee tempt let him turn away from evil and do good. I just want to bring to your attention, again, I'm just, I'm just, there's so much here to study, but I want to call to your attention that oftentimes when people, human beings, get themselves in a situation where life is hard, they turn to a sin as, uh, for comfort. And that could be a whole host of things, eating, drinking, watching things that ought not to be watched, whatever. We, they turn to sinful things to kind of, in their minds, I think they're thinking they're, he, they're, they're having a little bit of fun in the midst of all the suffering. That's not the way to go. Turn away from that and instead do good. And then it, and then it finally says to pursue peace. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And again, I, I'm just coming around to this point one more time that in order for us to preserve unity and to have peace with one another in the church, it's not a passive thing. It's not a passive thing. It is something that needs to be sought. Let him seek peace and find it. It's not okay for you to be in conflict with a brother or sister and to just say, I'm just gonna let that go. And you know, and you know it's there and they know it's there. You're kind of conveniently ignoring each other or whatever. No, you are to pursue peace, to go after it, to be tenacious, but tender and appropriate in trying to deal with it. I really like what Rick Thomas said when he was here. Rick Thomas said something along these lines. He says, uh, uh, and, and this, for some reason, this is the first time I've ever heard this. He, he said, you'll know that a conflict between you and another brother or sister in Christ is done when, or it's, it's dead when you can talk about it over its dead corpse, the, the dead thing being the problem, right? In other words, if, if Mark Mashburn and I, if we're having a conflict with each other, right, and, and we resolve it, I say, Mark, will you forgive me? He says, yes, I'll forgive you. But one of us didn't mean that. And every time I bring it up, Mark gets hurt feelings or I get hurt feelings or whatever, it's not done yet. 
right? But if Mark and I have a problem with each other and Mark and, Mark and I, we pursue peace together and we really, we do battle with that problem and we put it behind us and I come to him a year later and I say, Mark, remember that time when we had that conflict? And man, what a great thing that the Lord has done. And, and, and he's like, praise the Lord. Yeah, I'm so glad that's not between us anymore. It's that level. Pursue peace. And then the last part of the outline here is, is the result of these things. It says in this in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. It's a beautiful thing. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's a scary thing. What is the result? The Lord's eyes, number one, the Lord's eyes. And look, I'm just gonna put this up because you'll, you'll figure it out. The Lord's ears, the Lord's eyes and the Lord's ears. When you... Uh, <clears throat> How many of you are concerned that Big Brother is watching us at all times? Anybody concerned about that? Anybody ever have a discussion with someone in your house and then, and then and you're talking about a product that you've never bought before and then it appears on your Facebook feed or on your social media feed and you are like, who's listening, right? A lot of times when you go to the department store these days, there's cameras on you and there are signs saying that there are cameras on you and it feels weird. But I want to I say that those cameras that are watching you are not like the Lord's gaze over your life. Those cameras in the department store are there to protect them from you, that you might steal from them or do damage to their store. The eyes of the Lord are like a mother. When our firstborn was born, my wife, who used to be a very deep sleeper, all of a sudden changed and has never been the same since that first child was born. He could be, he could have, he could miss a breath two rooms away and she'd be like, I gotta go check on my child. He might be in danger. The eyes of the Lord on the righteous should be a comforting thing, like a mother of a newborn watching over her infant to care for, to nurture, to help grow that child. It says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It also says the ears are open to their prayer. This is particularly encouraging, right? And I think back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. What's the implication there? The implication is, is that if you, if you as a husband live co contrary to that, your prayers to God may be hindered. And so I think this text couldn't be more clear that, that the ears of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, the ears of the Lord are, on, are open to their prayer. And I'm so glad that God has made a way for us to live in righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ, which we're gonna to celebrate tonight around the Lord's table. We'll talk about that later. The question on the table today, though, was this. How do you live, how does, how does the church, how do Christians live in the midst of suffering? And here's the answer. Life together under suffering is difficult, but not impossible. It does require intentional thought and action to be successful. I can't stress that enough. If you don't walk out of here with anything today, walk out of here with this. The Christian life is not the passive life. It's not. In order for you, in order for us to build the kind of community that we need here to sustain ourselves through what I think is coming, uh, the coming suffering, we need to be active in each other's lives, actively pursuing unity with each other, pursuing peace with one another, speaking the truth and love to one another, we need to flex that muscle now so that when the suffering comes, we have the strength to endure it together. And again, I think that would be a powerful witness to the outside world who is just waiting for the church to come together and claw each other's eyes out, just like they're doing out there. Metaphorically speaking. So here's some possible applications. Number one, I would encourage you, if, uh, if you haven't been to Rick Thomas's website yet, I would encourage you to go to rickthomas.net. The .net is important because I think rickthomas.com is a Las Vegas magician. 
And so if you get to a website and there's card tricks, .net is what you want. And just search for his talk on sympathy versus empathy. It's so helpful. It was so helpful to me. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And you'll probably have questions and want to call me and talk about it. That's, that's cool. I like that. Uh, but anyway, listen to that talk, sympathy versus empathy. And then secondly, uh, consider the questions and the things that we went through this morning. And I, again, I asked you earlier to pick one and pray about it. And if you could, pick one character trait that, you, that the Lord maybe laid on your heart this morning that you need to work on. And uh, begin to pray, begin to search the scripture and begin to work on that area. And then finally, just a reminder that the Biblical Counseling Training Conference is coming up and we still have slots open for that. And uh, if, you, if you're not gonna come yourself, which I would encourage you to do, uh, perhaps mention that to somebody else uh, that you know that's a believer, maybe from a different church. We'd love, love, love to be able to equip uh, uh, representatives from all the churches in our community in biblical counseling uh, starting uh, in September, so October. All right, September, September. All right. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, please, in your grace, allow us here at Delaware Bible Church, to begin to cultivate an even more deep, meaningful, sometimes uncomfortable, but always helpful environment where our relationships with one another are not superficial, but deep and genuine. Father, prepare us as a church for the suffering that we see coming. And... Uh, will we'll not fail to use the opportunities that we have uh, as we serve one another, as we love one another, to speak out to the outside world about your love that, Lord, I pray would be on display in very meaningful and helpful ways in this body as a powerful witness of your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.